Welcome to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen. It's been my honor to be the Bible teacher at this ministry for over 20 years, and I've been pleased to come to you every weekday during that time. This is a program of the International Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism, of which I'm the director, and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, of which I'm the Bible teacher. You can learn more about our work by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Today, I ask you to take up 2 Kings chapter 8. In our last broadcast, we learned about the life of the Shunammite woman. She appears before the king of Israel while he's visiting with Gehazi, the former servant of Elisha. Today, we'll learn about King Jehoram and about Gehazi. Jehoram was a wicked king in the Bible. His idolatry wasn't the Baal worship that his father had introduced. Instead, he worshipped idols that he taught represented the true God of Israel. But this is idolatry too. Worshipping the image of a false god or worshipping the true god before an image, it's much the same thing. It's an idolatry that seeks to worship the true god, but to worship that god with idols that are made to represent him. And this is the idolatry that Jehoram continues in. And this fashioning of God into an image that you want and find acceptable is a common form of idolatry practice still today, mostly in Christian lands. Oftentimes in Christian churches, oftentimes in the altar of our own home and in our prayer life where we have a way that we want God to behave, to satisfy us and meet our needs and God becomes kind of the utilitarian God that we pull out of our closet periodically to sweep up and provide for us and meet our needs and it's an idol. Another thing we learned about Jehoram is that he was a skeptic. His skepticism about the God of Israel caused him to kind of maintain a a spiritual neutrality in which he really didn't commit himself to the things of God. He would do little formal things to kind of be an overture to the fact that he was going to follow God, but it wasn't embedded in his heart. He was neutral. And you should know that neutrality when it comes to the things of God is something that God finds particularly odious and repulsive. Revelation 3.16, the Lord Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God finds our spiritual neutrality to be something particularly obnoxious to him, and I think it was obnoxious to God in the life of Jehoram. And yet, through all of this, God began to put his judging hand upon Jehoram and upon Jehoram's country. God responded to the aloofness of Jehoram by meeting that aloofness with judgments that came upon the land in order to awaken Jehoram and the nation to himself. And so a famine comes upon the land that lasts for seven years, And it draws to the climax of that famine with an awful siege in this capital city of Samaria where all the people have through those seven years been drawing in closer and closer to try to find sustenance, a siege by the Syrian armies in order to to totally break down the Israelites and totally take over their kingdom. And it's at that point in time in which God breaks through to this spiritual aloofness and neutrality in Jehoram. It's at that moment in time that Jehoram realizes that he he has to come to a firm conclusion of what's going on in his life. And he says, surely this calamity is from the Lord. God has brought this judgment upon me. And then he asks Elisha, what else does the Lord require of me? What can God do? Can God deliver us? That's basically the idea. He turns to God for relief because he knows that the judgment that he's experiencing over all this time is not just the bad happenstance and circumstances that are difficult for him, but he knows that this is God's judgment on their lives. We said this multiple times in the last three sermons prior to this, that 
in order for us to come to a point of realizing God's rescue and deliverance in our life, in order to, for example, experience revival in our land, there has to be a sequence of things that take place. And the first thing is this, we have to recognize we're under God's judgment. Men have to know that they're under the judgment and condemnation and wrath of God. And that even the experiences of life, when things just keep going wrong for you, when your life continues to be depleted, at some point in time you have to ask yourself, could this be that God is using these circumstances as a rod of correction and judgment upon my life? By the way, all of God's judgments are intended as correction until the final one. And so God is here correcting and correcting and correcting. It's not until Jehoram recognizes this is God's judgment, this is a calamity God has brought, that Jehoram can do the next thing, which is to turn to God, which is what repentance is. To seek God for the answer for your life and your situation. And it's then that God delivers. Well, that's kind of what happens in Jehoram's life. It's after Joram acknowledges that this calamity is from God and that he turns to wonder and confess what God might be able to do for them that Elijah proclaims to him that the famine is going to end within 24 hours, and it does. God drives off the Syrians in a panic at the sound that he causes of a great approaching army, and the Syrians think that they've hired the Egyptians to come against us, and they flee, and behind as they flee, they leave all their provisions for the starving Israelites. A group of four dying leopards go out to surrender themselves up to the Syrians and discover that the camp has been abandoned. And at that moment, they realize that these poor lepers are now the richest men in all of Israel. They have food, all the food they need. They have all the riches of the booty that the Syrians have been collecting, gold chains, silver chains, clothes left behind. But they can't keep it a secret. They go and tell the king. The skeptic and spiritually neutral king is not without a witness of the greatness and truth of God. God is a deliverer. This is a mercy that God gives to him. God is still drawing Jehoram to this truth. Here's the third figure, it's Gehazi. We met Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 4 when we learned about the Shunammite woman. And there he was introduced to us, but we learned about his character in chapter 5. Gehazi has been given tremendously great honor. Wouldn't you love to have this honor? He is given the honor of serving alongside one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel, Elisha. He's able to see Elisha ministering to people and serving people, and he's able to sit alongside of Elisha as he teaches, instructs individuals. And an individual comes to Elijah who is a leper. He's the commander of the armies of Syria, Naaman. And he comes to the house of Elisha seeking healing, and Elisha gives him the instruction he needs in order to be healed. He's to go to the Jordan River, and he's to dip in the waters of the Jordan River, and God will heal him. Naaman is healed ultimately from that event, from that acting in faith to what Elisha tells him to do. He returns to the house of Elisha and he wants to give to Elisha all these riches that he has brought with him in order to pay for the service and Elisha won't take it. God's grace is not to be bought. It's not to be bought before he gives you the grace and it's not to be bought after he gives the grace. It's all free. It's just a grace. He doesn't want this man to be confused. He sends him on his way but Gehazi, though he is honored in this wonderful and tremendous position, wants more. He wants wealth. He wants riches. He follows, like Judas. You know, Judas, think of Judas. Judas was serving in the presence of the Lord Jesus. He had an opportunity to see miracles greater than Elisha displayed. He heard teaching more profound than Elisha offered. He saw Lord Jesus touching and raising the dead and healing the sick and the blind and the lame and... 
But the Bible tells us that Judas was in control of the money that people provided in order to sustain the lives of Jesus and the disciples as they traveled around Israel. And Judas was robbing from that for himself. The great honor God gave him, but he wanted more. He wanted more than what Jesus gave. He wanted wealth and money and riches and stature and Gehazi's another Judas. Gehazi goes after Naaman after he's been healed and leaving. And Gehazi, through a story that he concocts, gets Naaman to give him the riches that were meant for Elisha. He takes them and he hides them away. He returns to Elisha. Elisha says, did not my heart go out with you when you went out to take money from Naaman and turned him back? Is now the time to collect riches and lands and vineyards? And, and Elisha pronounces a curse on Gehazi. The leprosy that was on Naaman will be on you from now on. Gehazi becomes a leper. Here's what I believe is the timeline of where we're at in our story right now. It's in chronological order. As we've studied the life of Elisha, I believe we've been following all the way through 2 Kings in chronological order. There's a suggestion that that's not the case when we come to chapter 8 because in some of our translations it says, then Elisha spoke to the woman, but the word then is not there in the, in the Hebrew. It's more like Elisha spoke to the woman. He communicated to the woman. And we have a story that's taking place. So our timeline is in chronological order. A famine has been in Israel for over seven years. And a Shunammite has been warned or counseled by Elisha that she's to leave and depart because this famine is coming. And so she's gone to live among the Philistines during the time of the famine. The famine ends when four lepers, dying and living outside the walls of the city in desperation, go out to the army of the Syrians to get a little food or to die by their swords. The Syrians have fled. The lepers are saved. And so all in the city of Samaria and the people of Israel saved as well. And this also marks the end of that great season of famine. The seven years of famine ends in this moment of deliverance by the Syrians when all this food is opened up to them. Now, what I want you to allow me to do for a second is I want to make a little excursion here. And it's an excursion of my own imagination, I understand, but it doesn't contradict the facts that I've just told you. It doesn't contradict anything that we've read in this story. In fact, it is, in my mind, exceedingly plausible. Can I put it that way? Exceedingly plausible. And if it's not true, the story that I tell you, parts of it will be true. And if it's not true, and then I'm, it's an expansion of the life of Gehazi here, but if it's not true for Gehazi, I can tell you, this story has happened over and over and over again by the grace of God in the lives of other individuals. There are different times when I read different stories of different accounts, and I think it'd be wonderful to write a fictional account of that individual. I've always kind of wanted to write a fictional account of the rich young ruler who came to the Lord Jesus and said, what must he do to be saved? And he, he said he'd followed all the commands since its birth. Jesus then told him to go and take all of his riches and sell it and follow him. And it says he went away sad because he had great riches. And I've always kind of wanted to write a little novel following that individual's life and following what happened to him and tell his story. And I think it would be quite interesting. Gehazi's another individual that I'd like to write a book about. If I wrote a book about Elijah, a fictionalized book as well, and recognize much of what I'm saying here is a little bit of the fiction of my own imagination, but again, it's consistent with the facts that we read here. I think we'd find his life very interesting. I would tell of his youthful enthusiasm for the things of God, his eagerness to serve God and find a way of greatness in the service of God, the excitement that came upon when he realized that he'd been appointed to be the servant of the great prophet Elisha. If you remember, Elisha's career as a prophet began by being a servant to Elijah. And Gehazi's in that same privileged position. But then I'd write about the jealousy that began to slowly grow in his heart as he 
aspired after power and honor, the very power and honor that his master continued rejected at every opportunity he had to grab it. I'd write about how disappointments in his own weaknesses filled him with a growing envy and discontentment. You know, in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, Elisha sends him forward on his own to go and lay his staff on the dead boy's body, and Gehazi goes there and returns because nothing happens. He wasn't able to produce any of the great things that Elisha had done, and this disappointed him, and it caused envy and discontentment to grow in him. And I'd write about how this self-interest and how lies began to take over his life more and more. Eventually, this canker of self-interest and dishonesty grew until it broke out upon his body in leprosy on the day that he lied and stole from the Syrian commander Nahum and the reward that Elisha had turned away. And in that moment, Gehazi's life went into a downward spiral of judgment and a struggle to survive. Eventually, it found him living in a hovel, a shanty he had built just outside the walls of Samaria where he lived with three other lepers, starving away during the famine. The word was told along the walls that Elijah the prophet had declared that God would end the famine and deliver the people, but only if they would come into repentance. But deliverance had not come. And Gehazi and the other three decide finally to go out to the Syrians. What happens next is beyond belief. Overnight, this wretched, leprous man becomes potentially one of the richest men in all of Samaria. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.